Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantasocracy. And this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Oh, thank you. Thank, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's what I like to see an audience that is both easily amused and enthusiastic. Um, hello and welcome to my parlor for this cabaret of conversations that we call Pantasocracy, which I hasten to add always is a real word. I didn't just make that up. And it's the idea of a society of equals. And my parlor today, we are setting it up in the lovely surroundings of the Project Art Centre in the heart of Dublin's Temple Bar. And, and for you today, I brought together five amazing people. And first up, we have a man who has been to the ends of the earth and is now hunting a cure for paralysis, an explorer of the mind and body. That's Mr. Mark Pollock. With Mark is his partner, the activist and rights lawyer, Simone George, whose goal is to make Ireland the safest place in the world to be a woman. Please welcome Simone. Beside Simone is a man who has escaped to London to find himself, the comedian and podcast host, Jarlith Regan. And beside Jarlith is a woman who mixes science and comedy and who wants to go into space. Please welcome Neve Shaw. And finalement, as they might say in the French-speaking parts of Belgium, the soulful and songful composer and singer Michael Gallen. He's the lead singer with the band Anagog, and he has just written a new orchestral work around Oscar Wilde's fairy tales. Thanks to all of our guests for being here, but first, I get to take to the floor in what we are calling, with incredible imagination, the Panty Monologues. One of the things that I've been thinking about before this episode is the idea of turning points in people's lives, you know, whether they are unexpected or perhaps ones that you've chosen for yourself, because I think that's a, something that sort of connects all of our guests today. And of course, when I tell people that I was diagnosed with HIV 20 years ago in my mid-20s, that was at a time, of course, when HIV was a death sentence, they usually assume that it was a huge turning point in my life. They assume that something that big, that dramatic, must have in some way turned my life upside down and you know, shaken me to the very core and you know, changed me in some profound way. And no doubt I must have learned something about myself or about life, uh, perhaps about the cruelty or haphazard nature of life's twists. And people imagine that I have gained some kind of wisdom from that and uh, that I will now impart that wisdom to them. You know, maybe something about living each day as if it's your last, or grabbing life by the horns and taking every opportunity that comes your way. Uh, maybe I'm going to tell them to take time to stop and smell the flowers and not to sweat the small stuff. But unfortunately, I have to disappoint them because I have nothing profound to impart from that. Oh, sure, now, it was a big deal, and 20 years later, I can still describe every minute detail of my doctor's 1996 office. You know, his pen lying on his open notebook, the uh, post-it notes beside his hand, the color and texture of his green corduroy trousers, uh, the clock on the wall hung beside a drug company-sponsored wall chart that was peeling away clumsily on one corner from the clumsily applied Bluetech. But, you know, a couple of hours later, I was hungry, and I had to make a sandwich with the fridge-wilted lettuce that I had nearly thrown out the day before. And that evening, I still had to wash the dirty dishes. You know, life's mundanities didn't stop just because somebody told me I was going to die. The dog still needed to be walked, the bins still needed to be put out, the electricity bills still needed to be paid. I didn't, you know, grab life by the horns. I couldn't. I had just run out of bin bags, and Tesco was closing in 30 minutes. <laughs> Because it turns out that life's turning points are often much more mundane or unexpected than that. In 1986, I went to a gay bar for the very first time. I had never really met other gay people before that. And I went because I was desperate to meet other people just like me, and hopefully to finally get laid. <laughs> and I did both. <laughs> but walking nervously through the door of that innocuous basement changed my life as profoundly as Harry Potter's first letter from Hogwarts, because it revealed to me a previously hidden secret world that had existed all along hidden in plain sight. 
you know, a magical world of witchcraft and faggotry, where a hundred people, <laughs> just like me, were dancing sweatily to the Pointer Sisters, while feet away on the pavement above our heads, the muggles were passing by, you know, oblivious, on their way to catch the night bus home. But there, under the pavement and under the mirror ball, I discovered a tribe just like me. Hidden and ignored, they were building a whole new world where we were free to make up the rules as we went along, and where everything was up for grabs. And over a glass of Campari and orange juice, <laughs> I was changed profoundly. Because it turned out I wasn't the only gay in the world. I could be whoever I wanted to be, and nothing would ever be the same again. Um, I'm going to come to you first, Mark, because in a way, when I sort of look at your biography, um, it seems like it's almost a succession of turning points that in some ways have been thrust upon you. I mean, first of all, you, know, you went blind in your early 20s, so obviously I'm just going to impress upon you, I look absolutely amazing. <laughs> and then obviously then you had your accident six years ago and were paralyzed in the waist down. So I'm assuming that certainly the accident was a massive turning point for you. Am I assuming too much? Um, you're not. I mean, it's very obviously a, yeah. a, a, a turning point, but perhaps not in the same way as the, the blindness was because mm -hmm. I went from a fully functioning 22-year-old and then I lost my sight. It was the first disability that I had acquired and I had to deal with all of those things right from scratch, loss mm -hmm. of sight, loss of identity, the battle with lack of confidence, wondering who I was going to be. And I refound my identity as a competitor as I raced to the South Pole 10 years later. And whenever I had my most recent accident and became paralyzed, I just, I think the impact of paralysis is, is, is greater uh, because there are all the secondary complications that come with it. But I had this sense that I just couldn't spend another 10 years to find the new version of the South mm. Pole. I was more impatient this time and perhaps better equipped than I was in the aftermath of blindness. Am I right in saying that your, the blindness was something you saw coming? Because, you know, you'd had eyesight problems all of your life. Not really. I, I lost the sight in my right eye when I was five. I had detached retinas in my good eye twice as a teenager. Yeah. But it was not inevitable. Lots of people have detached retinas in both eyes and they're, they're fixed. So I knew nothing about guide dogs and white sticks and braille and talking computers and in fact that life could be led as a, as a blind mm. person. So I sort of feel like I should have been genning up on all this stuff before <laughs> I went blind, but it wasn't, it just wasn't inevitable. And maybe even when things are inevitable, maybe you don't go after them yeah. because it hasn't happened yet. But I uh, tell you what, falling out a window and breaking my back, now that was a shock. <laughs> well, it's funny, I've met you a few times now, Mark, and I've never told you this before, but I actually know you longer than you think I do. Ooh. Because years ago, I used to take the train every week to Belfast and back to do a gig every it was Wednesday night. For like two years, I did that. Yeah. And I would regularly see you on the Enterprise train. You were coming up and down to Dublin. And I, was, you know, I used to do this gig with another queen, you know, and the two of us would be going up. And we'd all say, oh, there's that handsome blind guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it just made you more exotic and interesting. Yeah, well, I, 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 got, I, I don't know what stage this is, but as, as I've acquired my disabilities and become a minority group in inverted commas, my open-mindedness and pantasocrity-ness <laughs> uh, nice has, has improved perhaps 10 years ago. You know, you coming over in uh, the full kit when I could see may have unnerved me as a northern, dare I say, bigot even no. if I didn't have <laughs> So uh, um, I, I suspect I'm a much better person now, so I'm uh, <laughs> glad to be here. Well, it, one of the things that's interesting about Mark's story is how it intersects with Simone's, because, you know, Simone, you, you are this sort of high-powered corporate lawyer type dashing around with a cup of coffee in your hand in the daytime and, you know, <laughs> taking on the corporate world, and, you know, very much an identity of your own, in, in a sense. And then after Mark's accident, you became Simone the Carer, always called the Beautiful Carer, which I know in some way I think made it more romantic or something for people. And so 
At the time, was that something that was difficult? Was in a way, Marx's accident took his own identity away, but in some ways, took yours too. Yeah, I suppose there's still a narrative that people are more comfortable with yeah. for for women. You know, we raise boys to be competitive, and we raise girls to care. And I think people identified with it, and also the Hollywood fairy tale association with our wedding because Mark fell out the window four weeks before mm. our wedding to the day and so even now I talk about my legal work or I talk about the six years of science Mark and I have done and our travel around the world and invariably the first question from the audience is so when are you two getting married um. you know we want mummy and daddy to be <laughs> happy and together and all of those things so this is the world we've all been raised in. It's mm. not equal yet. Mm. And we see people in ways that we're comfortable with. I think rather than his accident being a turning point, I think I was always this person. Yeah. So I was always going to do the work that I'm doing now and live my life this way. But I got onto the conveyor belt. So I studied law. I went to college. Because I did well, I got the good job. And when you get the good job that it's laid out, then you, you continue, you become managing partner, you die playing golf. You know, like, that's, it's a trajectory and it's really hard to get out of. So in fact, what Mark's accident did for me, if you can take a positive out of it, was like going into that basement gay bar. I went, these are my people. Yeah. Like, this is my world. This is the world as I've always understood it. And what I did for the last 10 years yeah. was the matrix. It was something else, you know. Be because there was actually a point where, after taking some time out, after the accident, like, you went back momentarily to your corporate job. A and what happened when you went back? Uh, so Mark's accident happened just after the beginning of the recession. So it went bad for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I went back into sort of a year later uh, where it had got even worse. So around Dublin, people were being promoted into jobs where they were, had more responsibility but were being paid less than they were before. Mm. So everyone was kind of miserable. And I just couldn't be around people and in a, in a world where everyone was so despairing because, yep. strangely, um, I didn't feel that about life. I felt hopeful and wanted to be forward-looking and doing something progressive and positive. Mm. And the minute I said to some people I knew that I, I needed to change and do something different and true to why I'd started to study law in the first place, Safe Ireland picked up the phone and, and rang me and said, you're meant for this work that we want mm. you to do. Do you want to just briefly explain about Safe Ireland here? Safe Ireland is the National Domestic Violence Agency, so they are focused on social change. They collaborate with the 40 domestic violence refuges around Ireland that look after women and children who are leaving abuse and violence. So the piece of work they asked me to do originally was to travel the country meeting women who'd experience of the legal system. So they'd called the police, they'd gone to court, and they'd come through that system and to find out from them whether what Safe Ireland understood was right, which is the big question everyone asks, which is so hurtful, is why don't you leave? And the answer is because leaving is so dangerous and then so difficult and so impoverishing and so life-changing that in fact staying is sometimes the smart, strong thing mm. to do. Um, I want to come back to that later because in a weird way it ties in to a number of our guests here. Jarlith, um, I said earlier that you escaped to London to find yourself. But, but um, what age were you when you left Ireland? It was four years ago, so I'm 35 now. I guess okay. I was 31. And I don't know if it was this escape. Like so many Irish people my age at that time, it was a gut-wrenching period where it felt like you were surplus to requirements. Mm. It was like you were at a house party and the people who organized the house party sh suddenly showed up in the sitting room wearing their pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> but the government was yeah. basically going, and there's various quotes that you can look up and find about how proud they were that young Irish people would explore the world now that the recession was here. And I really felt a major feeling of 
fuck you. Yeah. On a huge level, I was, I was angry. Yeah. And, of course, you couldn't articulate that. You couldn't, at the time, go, I'm going for these reasons. Yeah. You had to be, and this is the thing that I'm only able to talk about now, four years later, with everything that's happened, having happened, but you had to be like, well, I'm finding that a lot more of my work is in London. <laughs> uh, and a lot less of it is here, not due to the fact that not a lot of Irish people were going out to see comedy. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't the spare cash. You were a luxury item as a stand-up comic. And, uh, I mean, I went to London the exact same way that the comics of the early 90s and late 80s mm. did. Uh, so in that way, it was an escape from that feeling that I'm describing there. But God, you know better than anybody that feeling once you go abroad, we've yeah. had this discussion of like the horizon opening up in front of you. It's like a, it's like a Springsteen song. Well, it's, it's one of the things that's come up a lot <laughs> in this show is um, the idea of having to leave Ireland to maybe see it more clearly from, mm -hmm. from outside or going to another space where nothing is expected particularly of you because you're an outsider there, and that that sort of opens doors for you in some way. That, is, is that, that's how you felt about London, sort of going over the anonymity in a sense of London and... Yes, the anonymity is, is a thing. It's, yeah. a, it's also a terrifying thing for a lot of Irish people because you, know, you go from being something of a big fish in a small pond to being a newt. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's remarkably liberating. Yeah, and you have a lot of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Who's looking? Yeah. Nobody's looking anymore. Uh, and the various different people that I spoke to on the podcast that I created as a result of that feeling uh, spoke about that from the word go. Yeah. Graham Linehan saying, I said, do you not feel that when you arrive in London that you're an ant underneath the foot of this city's elephant foot? And he was like, I loved that. Mm. That you could walk down the street and people didn't care what yeah. you were up to. Whereas in Dublin there was and still is a feeling of, what's he, where, where is your man? What's <laughs> Why is he always walking up and down this street? Wait till I tell it anti. What's that good looking blind lad doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a real thing. Um, you know, and just for anybody who doesn't know, so Jarth, you started this podcast when you moved to London called An Irishman Abroad. And God, it's been so successful. It's absolutely huge. And you've basically spoken to every Irishman abroad. <laughs> I mean, and, and a few women, but, but, but it, it is mostly conversations between men. And I think you have yourself described as maybe the podcast is the new pint. Mm. That, that it, it gives men the opportunity to speak about you know, bigger things or, or you to know, open up. each other, to open up Yeah, to each put other. two microphones between two guys and tell them it's going on iTunes on Sunday. <laughs> suddenly, they're uh, exposing their soul to you in the way they would have after eight pints in yeah. the 80s. It is true. Podcasts, to me, are the new pints. And I kind of think that part of that is down to, just like this show, there's space mm. and room mm. to do it. It's a new medium of broadcasting in that the long-form interview is not new, but uh, there was rarely a, a time or a medium through which people would sit or walk or commute uh, for the duration of an hour and a half's conversation. Mm. And in that time, no matter what front, and I have seen fronts thrown up by these men and women, there is nowhere to hide in an hour-long conversation. Mm. Eventually, the truth does come out, yeah. and sometimes it's dark, Sometimes it's hilarious, but it's always the truth, yeah. and that's light as a feather. Mm. In a way, Charlotte, I would sort of say that you feel it in some ways Ireland failed you. But um, Neve, yeah. now, Neve here is a, a scientist, and it's funny, Neve, because we in this show have also discussed before the sort of the fallacy that there's a left brain and a right brain, and that you're either scientifically minded and all of that, or you're artistic and messy and all that, and never the twain shall meet. But I keep meeting more and more people yeah. who come from a science background who then one day think, oh my God, I need to dance, I need to sing. <laughs> and um, in your case, you wanted to act and do comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, explain that to us for starters. Um, so I grew up in a house where, uh, so dad was like, 
we're all science fiction fanatics, all of us. So science was everywhere. Like, if you wanted to change a plug, he'd show you. We had encyclopedias everywhere. So I have a very personal relationship with science. So I kind of do all my thinking that way. And then mum's family are all trad musicians and storytellers and stuff. So every time we'd have a get-together, we'd all have to have our song or our story ready. And uh, myself and my brother used to make tapes, uh, mimicking people and improvising and all that sort of stuff. So it was always there. And I always acted in, you know, the local school dramas and stuff. But I was a child of the 80s, so you had to get a proper job, you know. So when it came to filling out my CAO form, it was a hot mess. So I pursued engineering and I did a master's in engineering. And I just basically hid in academia because every time I tried to have a job, like a real job as an engineer, I hated it. I was useless. You know, it just wasn't enough. And so then I did a PhD in science, which was nice because you're kind of like a detective figuring something out for four years. So you get really focused and obsessed with that. And then when you finish the PhD, you have to work in academia. And I was there working uh, as a postdoc and I realized I'd made a massive mistake because this was just not the world I belonged in mm. at all. And it was like that trying to find your kin. And um, my marriage had broken down at the end of my PhD as well, because that's the great thing about a PhD, all the truth comes to the top <laughs> as well. <laughs> and uh, I really was miserable. I started getting involved in amateur drama in Cork, which is where my postdoc was on. So I decided, why don't I just leave science for a bit and try acting for a while and see what happens? And it was like a massive breath. It was like, <sighs> of relief. And I did that, and I started pursuing acting for a while, and then, of course, another turning point comes where I miss science, so that's how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're never satisfied, is basically what you're telling us. I'm always, <laughs> always looking. Um, but the reason I was, I was sort of thinking about you when I was talking to Giles is that, in a sense, he felt that you know, Ireland at that time yeah. sort of failed him. But you, um, you have a TED Talk in which you discuss the idea of failure just being sort of, it's, it's on a scale, or it's on yeah. a process. It's reminiscent of the Einstein quote where he says something like, failure is part of the process it to is. success or, or something along yeah. those lines. And I, I, I do believe that. I had to really look at my perception of success and failure. And what had kind of happened to me was other people's perception of success was the life that I was leading. Mm -hmm. And I had to let that go. And then once I let that go, it's kind of scary, but you have to just feel your way forward. So I tried to live that way. And I was gripped with fear, so I was, I was just standing still. And that's the worst thing you could possibly do because that's the only way you can fail. Mm. You're not failing if you're making any headway forward. And so by doing that, I've kind of opened my mind to embrace that I, I want to do all these crazy things with my life, and I'm going to do them. I don't know how, but I'm on the journey to them, and that to me is succeeding. Mm. Mm. Um, now, Michael, you're left-brained, <laughs> even though we've already agreed that that's a fallacy, but, um, but you, you've always been you know, creative and, and musical. I, I'm particularly in, I'm interested in this whole idea of turning points and change and failure and success. And you know, this year's you know, the centenary of 1916, and we're all about memory and remembering that. And of course, you could argue that 1916 was a total failure. And then you could also argue that its failure is what was central to its eventual success. And you are from Monaghan, and you're doing a 1916 remembering thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm making a, a piece called What You Forget, which is a choral piece and then a series of sound installations around the county. Okay. Um, I suppose I was given... Sound the, installations around Monaghan? Around Monaghan, yeah. In, There's in, an idea I've never heard of before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think Monaghan's heard of the idea before either from the conversations I've had down there. But the, mm. what fascinates me about that period 100 years ago is the variety of ideas, like the variety of visions of Ireland that there are at the time. Mm. And, how and radical ideas. Radical yeah. and radically different. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, even, even in terms of the signatories, how different their visions for what Ireland would turn into were. So I suppose one of the, the narratives that sometimes can get overlooked in terms of celebration is the border. And because Manon is on the border, and I, I grew up very close to it, I was very interested in different uh, demographics within the county that might have gravitated north after the foundation of the Free State or mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So the piece is an interactive sound installation that, uh, that forgets itself over time, basically. And it's in different locations, dependent on how frequented the locations are, the installation will forget more of itself. So it's, I suppose, <laughs> how, I, I, I suppose it's, it's how the, the memory is an active thing. I'm using, yeah. using a lot of Patrick Cavanagh's poetry for it. And uh, 
how the, 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 the act of memory is a creative act of itself. Yeah. Um, and therefore how, you know, the role that forgetting kind of plays in that creative commemoration. And we're actually, you're going to do his music for us now. It's a song written by Connolly, right? Well, Connolly wrote a, a, a songbook yes, um, yeah. for the workers. Uh, it was basically considered to be something that was very important at the time to kind of get people invested in the cause. Interestingly, in, in Connolly's writing, a lot of his problems are with people who might actually fall into the same belief category as him, but mm-hmm. that are moderate and that kind of urge moderation, that, that won't go out and kind of fight for the cause, yep. and which was also the case before the rising, I suppose, with mm-hmm. the, the signatories. So these songs were supposed to be a rallying cry um, to get the general public engaged with the, what he saw as a kind of both a nationalist and a, a socialist revolution. Yeah. I think it's very interesting in terms of contemporary politics as well that you know, the enemy was agnosticism more than a different ideology. What he really wanted to kind of combat was a laziness in the general public Mm -hmm. to actually take up arms and and fight for their own rights. Yeah, what's it called? It's called We Only Want the Earth, and the music is set by uh, Manus O'Reardon, who's the son of the founder of the Irish Communist Party, Michael O'Reardon. Let's hear from Michael. Some men faint-hearted ever seek our program to retouch And will insist whene'er they speak that we demand too much Tis passing strange, yet I declare such statements bring me mirth For our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth Be moderate, the trimmers cry, who dread the tyrant's thunder. You ask too much, and people buy from you aghast in wonder. Tis passing strange, yet I declare, such statements bring me mirth. For our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. Our masters, all a godly crew whose hearts bleed for the poor. Their sympathies assure us too, if our demands were fewer. Most generous souls, but please observe what they enjoy from birth. Is all we ever had the nerve to ask, that is the earth. The labor fakir full of guile, base doctrine ever teaches. And while he bleeds the rank and file, tame moderation preaches. Yet in despite we'll see the day when with sword in its girth, labor shall march in war array to claim its own the earth. For labor long with sighs and tears to its oppressors knelt. But never yet to aught save fears did the heart of a tyrant melt. We need not kneel our cause no dearth to a loyal soldier's need. And our victorious rallying cry shall be we want the earth. Thank you, Michael Gowan. Thank you. Um, Mark, I want to come back to you again now about, um, well, I, I guess it's tied up with your drive, but also maybe about your ambition. And at the moment, you are working hard, in some ways trying to overcome paralysis and discover a cure. You have, in some ways, told doctors and stuff to use you as a guinea pig. And, of course, then you're also working with this sort of really super high-tech ectoskeleton thing. Um, (laughs) Explain that to us. Yeah, Yeah, well, I think in my attempt to re-establish my identity after blindness, that took me to the South Pole, and then I had this paralysis, and I, I was searching, I suppose, for a new South Pole, a place to compete, a, a place to pursue success as, as we risk failure. 
And whilst the South Pole was sport, Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen proved it was possible. Uh, well, in fact, Amundsen proved it was possible to get to the South Pole and back again. Scott proved you could get there and died on the way back. <laughs> Shackleton never made it there at all, but he is the best story out of the lot of them. Uh, but in fact, this challenge to find a cure for paralysis, up to this point in, in history, it's proven to be impossible to find a cure. Mm. Um, so we're in this exploration space and history is filled with accounts of the impossible made possible through human endeavor. So in the aftermath of my accident while I was indulging myself in being sick in bed, Simon was filling time uh, looking after me and reading scientific journals about a new wave of pioneers around the world mm. trying to find a cure for paralysis, physical exercise, experts, robotics specialists building robotic legs to augment the human form to allow us to stand and walk and then scientists really working on trying to reignite the nervous system using electrical stimulation of the spine uh, combined with drugs and you know we myself Simon and the team behind us which now numbers 25,000 people running every November in 50 cities around the world they help us fund it they supported us uh, to go out and meet these explorers to get to know them and to start to work with them and I suppose the culmination of all that is that I now on a daily basis walk in my robotic legs have my back electrically stimulated and those two interventions uh, uh, combined mean that I'm the only person in the world now to, to have been able to voluntarily move my paralyzed legs and as I do the robot uh, dynamically does less and our agenda now is like I don't need it to go any further than that because you know I've got a set of robotic legs and electrical stimulation <laughs> but that's not good enough and our agenda is not to do research for research's sake, but to help these explorers uh, crack the problem of paralysis and get it into the clinic, get the interventions that are starting to work into the clinic so other people can access them. But in some ways, I imagine that, right, your um, doctor who's working on paralysis probably thinks, oh my God, you're the best patient in the world, because you just said, do whatever you want to me. But then another way, I suspect that when you're in you know, rehab, clinic or whatever, that they think you're the worst patient in the world, because often what they want you to do is accept the reality of your situation mm. and, and sort of say, accept, you're never going to walk yeah. again, and then deal with that. You must accept it. Mm. And that's, that's the agenda in the hospital. You must accept the reality of whatever you've got going yep. on in your life and paralysis. That is that there is no cure. And you, if you don't accept it, you run the risk of it becoming all about the paralysis, not yep. learning how to look after yourself, not learning how to, the wheelchair skills, not learning how to look after your relationships, yep. to get out and work again. So you must accept it. But I find that human beings simply don't stop at acceptance. We would have a shut up shop by now if we just stopped mm. at acceptance. Yeah. And where we got to was that in fact, uh, we as human beings and we in the paralysis community must also have hope. So the intellectual gymnastics for that is that we must run acceptance and hope at once in parallel and I accept life in a wheelchair and try and look after that and my hope agenda in parallel is walking in robotic legs, being stimulated, taking drugs and trying to find uh, a cure. Can I just... Yes. <laughs> Although, in fairness, I think if I was paralysed, I'd hate you. I mean, oh my God, look at him. Oh my God, do I have to do all of that? Do I have to be optimistic and climbing bloody mountains? Yeah. Can I just ask, uh, after it happens, I mean, I would feel so much anger for so long that this happened to me, the why me element of it. I don't know how I'd pull myself out of that. How long did that period last for you, or did you have one of those at all? Oh, I did, I did. I think the people by my bed, my friends, my family, they did. But you live in, in a spinal unit for three, six, 12 months and, and you see other people's lives playing out and as you lie in hospital, you have plenty of time to tease that out. Well, you know, um, and Gerald, you should go and find this. I think everybody should actually, because it's quite remarkable. And one of the most amazing things I've read in a while is Mark wrote a blog post two weeks after his accident. It is incredible the sort of 
clarity you have about your situation two weeks after it happened. And the, you know, he's explaining you know, where you are and how you're thinking about it. And, and you can see already the, the seeds of where you are now in, in that blog post. It's really remarkable, and I hate this word, but it's actually very inspiring. Well, th so, thank you. I, I tell you, the only reason I was able to write with such clarity and free-flowing thought was because I was absolutely juiced up on <laughs> massive amounts of morphine. <laughs> Don't knock it. <laughs> and where, where does that attitude come from, Mark? Have you got, like, where, where does that remarkable attitude, that can-do spirit come from? In your, is it from your family or your...? My view is that, it, you know, it's not... Simon is the intellectual in our relationship. It comes from a, a simplification of thought. And in fact, the answer to the optimist realist or something else is, in, is just realism. Like, I was angry. I was sad. Uh, I still am. But the truth is, the truth is, the truth is the truth. I, ca I can't see. I can't walk. I can use my arms. I do have a great network around me. It was just basic, simple facts. Mm. And that's what, I, that's what I tried to tease out. And that's what I continue to try to do. I don't know where it comes from, except just uh, simplicity. Mark had to learn through going blind how to deal with life is a struggle. And all of us then watched and learned when he went through that. The Buddhists say to live is to struggle. I mean, yeah. that's what you well, talked well, about Well, it's funny because I think a lot of people would look at Mark and they would put some of that down to sort of you know, male characteristics of competitiveness and all of that. But then as actually as Mark said, it was Simone, you were the one who was you know, rifling through you know, journals trying to, from the very beginning, trying to find an answer to this bloody thing yeah. or, or whatever. Um, While he was crying. Yeah. So, which wouldn't be what you would think, or this, this is, I think this is what we do when we raise our kids in a gendered way is so unfair because, in fact, the reason he didn't get depressed, and I think I then didn't get depressed, we were sad, was because we were able to be sad. Mark allowed every man, all the rowing guys who were at Henley, who are, some of them are total chauvinists, who are total masculine to the end of uh, the earth, uh, he gave them permission to cry because when they came to his bedside, he held their hand and they cried together. Oh, we cried. There was a lot of, there was a lot of crying. And so, so like all, all of being a complete person, I think, is well, well, what yeah. you personify, which is all of the masculine and all of the feminine in the one. Mm. Jarlath, do you think from your podcasting and interviewing all of these Irishmen abroad, do you think you learned anything about Irish men and how they deal with, you know, is, is there a specific Irish male way that's either, you know, inherent or learned of dealing with life and life's tragedies? Or I think the one thing that I've learned is that how different everyone is mm. and that it is, like you say, down to choices, but everybody does it their own way and that's okay the only question i ask every week at the end of every episode is what's the one piece of advice that you can stand over and those pieces of advice are so diverse and different and some people are so skeptical of advice but that even that question itself is born out of a, an immaturity that there's somebody with the advice you with the answer there isn't and as a comic you walk around for years thinking, if only I could figure out what shortcut Jerry Seinfeld took. <laughs> he is as clueless as you, and your parents are as clueless as you, and we muddle through it, mm. making it up as we go along. Yeah. And there's a beautiful liberation in knowing that. Well, I mean, my thing is about it is how you deal with it is that you also remember the good luck you had, like, you know, I don't know, in Mark's case, meeting Simone, you know, um, like, whatever, I don't know how you met, but he... I hunted he, her down. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. male of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, so that's in, another thing that sort of is, is interesting to me about your story, and, um, and that we still, to this day, and I'm guilty of it myself, if somebody says they met a scientist, I picture a guy. Mm. Um, do you think, do, do you think that that played any role in why you didn't feel at home necessarily in, in the science world? No, no I, I have to say I'm one of the very fortunate people that I've never seen the fact that I'm a woman get in the way of anything. I, mm. I, I think it could be the house I grew up in. My mum was very tough. 
And I, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with women about it and I've gotten into trouble before that I've never defined myself purely by the fact that I'm, I'm a woman. But do you think, you know, that because you had that confidence in yourself that you were just simply unaware of, of other people seeing you differently or, or they simply didn't? Like, engineering is hard, you know, like, because a lot of the lads that are attracted to the course engineering are extremely immature, you know, so they don't know how to... <laughs> in first year, like, they didn't know Letters how to... Letters complaint to RTE. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't know how to talk to girls, so they, you know, they gave us a lot of slagging. But I just put that down to the fact that it was engineering. Like, I never put it down to the fact that I was a girl. It was just yeah. like that I didn't know how to stand up for myself, so you learn how to go, yeah, you know, like, you give it back. <laughs> Your banter gets better. But I never thought it was because I shouldn't be there. Simone, in your work with Safe Ireland, I assume this isn't a typical story. Well, I'm actually just laughing. I wonder, is it as well because you had brothers? So I'm the middle of three girls. I went to an all-girls school. And then when I went to college and into law, which was starting to become more female, but uh, in one of my first lectures, I was answering a question in constitutional law. And... uh, halfway through the question one of the guys just finished it for me and I wasn't used to this behavior I came from such the the sort of civilized but segregated world so I just stopped talking and the lecturer said um Aidan uh Simon was doing perfectly well answering that I don't know why you felt the need to help her out yeah but see those things happened to me as well but I would never have necessarily thought it was because I was a girl I just thought that guy's a wanker it's my job to stop that from happening but it was never because I was a girl it was like no you don't get to do that yeah. you know but it was because I wasn't equipped to do to, so it was me like it's my responsibility to fix that for myself you know so yeah. maybe it was because I had brothers yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah do I see it in my work with Safe Ireland yeah like violence against women the movement around the world to combat this has been a movement created by women. All the grassroots organisations were started by women in their spare bedrooms. Ireland had the second domestic violence refuge in the world, which was in, opened in 1974. So it's only 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, there was nothing. There was no law. You couldn't get a barring order. You know, of course, yeah. we all know you couldn't open a bank account without your husband's signature. But we're not going to solve this problem, and we're not going to have this incredible aspiration of Ireland being the safest country in the world for women and children, unless uh, everyone is involved. Can I just say that, uh, that I think is really important in what you're doing is how men take ownership of what's going on. This talk of sexism and violence against women as women's problem, mm. Mm. when lads need to realise we're the ones doing the sexism. We're the ones doing the violence. So why is it their problem? It's man's problem. These are our behaviors. And it's our problem when we're raising the young men that will continue to go through that and see those behaviors as okay. Uh, uh, The oblivious nature of men to this is just as simple as asking yourself, listening to this now as a man, have you or do you regularly feel unsafe in public places? Most guys have never had that experience. Broad daylight, I'm talking about. Most guys will say, oh yeah, sometimes walking down Henry Street, I feel like somebody's following. Imagine that during the day on a bus because the guy next to you won't move when there's spare seats. The vision of this country as being a safe place for women, it's so noble, but it begins with such simple steps. Would Mm. you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I saw Gloria Steinem speak in in West Cork, and she makes the point that there are, for the first time in human history, fewer women on the planet than there are men. So we're systematically killing women around the world, whether it's domestic violence, uh, street violence, gender choice, sun preference. Mm. Well, it's funny, I think in Ireland we have a particularly complex sort of relationship with the feminine, mm. um, you know, the virgin whore thing. And in so, in so many ways, oh, we are, we're all about our mothers and, uh, you know, the mission, you know, Aaron herself and all of that stuff is sort of celebrated in one way. But then on, on another way, I think we have a, a much more complicated and in common with so many cultures, I think, you know, we despise the feminine. 
you know, I, I think that you know, the gays particularly feel that, you know. Um, but that brings me to something I've been sort of dying to talk to you about, um, Michael, because Michael is working on a new project. This the opera. Yes. Yeah. Well, n next year I'll be composing an opera called The Month in the Lock, which is based on the story of the Westmoreland Lock Hospital, and it was a hospital that treated venereal disease. It was opened by the British Army because syphilis was such a massive problem mm -hmm. at the time for the army. But at a certain point, they only treated women, um, mainly prostitutes, because it was believed at the time that only women could spread venereal disease. And, and that was a commonly held belief the whole way through the 19th century. And when the Free State took it over, it became St. Margaret's of Cortona. And when it was shut down, the records were put into a bonfire. And one conscientious doctor pulled some out and kind of kept them in his house and then made them available to the Irish Medical Archive. But I, I came across this work because I'm the artist in residence in Trinity this year. And there's a group that are working on the role of stigmatization in medicine that came across this hospital and are kind of looking at how certain beliefs that we hold as natural now have their roots in kind of the late 19th century, and particularly views of, of women and the female body and then uh, venereal disease and the kind of stigmas around mm -hmm. it. And I suppose being an advocate of debate, I, th I think it's an incredibly important that we find avenues through which to discuss, you know, complex, difficult subject matter, you know, like the treatment of women or like, you know, women's autonomy over their bodies, that sometimes it's very hard because people feel like they're just in one corner or the other corner and you use the straw man, you know, argument against your enemy. Whereas really the role of debate is to bring as many people as possible into this whole discussion so that views can change. Yeah. Um, and so what I find fascinating about this hospital is it's a prism through which to consider certain beliefs that we hold in 2016 and to see that perhaps you know, they have their roots in a very odd, you know, perhaps a very unpalatable place. Yeah. I suppose as well, I kind of think that it's, it's one of the interesting things that music and drama can do is that you can take this type of subject matter and have people emotionally engage with yep. the, the human side of a story. Yeah, because when I read it, I was so... Well, at first, I'd never heard of the place before, and it was just so fascinating because obviously, you know, something I dabbled in a lot is around the stigma of, you know, sexuality and, and all of that, and I, I think we have a fabulous history in this country of shaming women for their sexuality, mm -hmm. you know, from the Magdalene Laundries back. I'm amazed more we don't know about it more. But given that there was no cure for syphilis at the time, did the women get out? They were treated with mercury. So, uh, so an awful lot of the patients would have died as a result of the treatment rather than the illness. But it became a, a part of Dublin folklore. I mean, it's mentioned in Joyce's Dubliners. There's mm. a phrase, the wages of sin is a month in the lock. So the, and it was kind of used as a bedtime story for young girls that if you kind of, you know, if you sort of strayed from the, from the straight and narrow path that you'd end up spending a month in the lock. So at what point during hearing about this hospital for people with syphilis did you think that would make a great <laughs> yeah. opera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a long history of composers being obsessed with, uh, with prostitutes and kind of stories yeah. that, uh, so. Um, but uh, but talking about men's discussion around you know women's problems, I kind of find myself very frustrated in the last year because you know there there are so many issues around women's experience of being Irish at the moment, and as a man, it can be quite hard to yeah. find a way to enter into yeah. the discussion, much as you like to, mm. because uh, because mm. I, I, there's a complexity there because you also feel like you're at the root of the problem, but you you know how do you get across that? So when I came across this the story of the Westmoreland Lock Hospital, I thought, well, this is something I, that I know that I can engage with and I can tell a story here. And you know, if, if I can in any way help members of an audience to think about their own attitudes, you know, be that towards stigmatized disease or towards sexuality or towards women, then you know, I, I've done some good work. So hopefully I'll manage to do that. Well, I now plan to write a screenplay where Mark ends up going back in time to be an 18th century prostitute who gets syphilis and ends up in the lock and then the whole movie is him refusing to accept it. Give me all the mercury. He's going to find a cure. Very much. I see Broadway. I see Broadway. Yeah. Do it, um, do it. So, um, so at this point, we're going to sort of bring us um, to a sort of a beautiful close with a little more music, but you're going to bring your band up. I am. Um, well, would you like to introduce your band and um, get yes, set up? Yes, so bring them down. So this is Rob, Kieran, and Adam from Anagog.
wanted so much But little joy suffice Looking back I was keeping all my secrets safe Things that turn to dust That was Michael Gallon, the guys from Anagog with the song Rosie's Kitchen, which is out as a single from the band this month. Thanks again, Michael. And of course, my thanks to all my guests, including Michael, Mark Pollock, Simone George, Neve Shaw, and Jarlath Regan. And of course, to our lovely audience here at the Project Arts Centre. And of course, thank you to the Project Arts Centre for letting us use their beautiful theatre today. You can catch up on the Pantisocracy episodes online on rte.ie and follow us on social media using the hashtag Pantisocracy. I've been Panty Bliss. Thank you for listening. Woo! Woo!